the Iowa caucuses in chaos. This is a mess. If it isn't a mess, it'll do to the mess gets here. It's about the chaos and confusion that has rocked the first major political contest of the year. So the country is still talking about the Iowa caucuses, but not in the way Iowans would have wanted. It's still unclear who exactly won the Iowa caucuses. We still don't really know what happened in Iowa last night. I'm Isaac Dover, and this is The Ticket. I'm back in Washington for a few days now, but Monday night, I was in West Des Moines. I was at a caucus site in a Holiday Inn. And as the night wore on, we started to hear there were some reporting errors, and it just seemed isolated. The caucus process is always messy. And then, very quickly, over the course of about 20 minutes, it went from, huh, there might be something wrong, to, oh, wow, there is a widespread problem. So what exactly was the problem? There is growing outrage and frustration over the Iowa caucus app. This app just failed. I didn't get any sleep on Monday night, and I haven't gotten much sleep since. Of the results we know, it's clear that Pete Buttigieg had a better night than expected. Bernie Sanders appears essentially tied with him for delegates, though he seems to have gotten more votes. The headlines after Iowa, though, aren't about the candidates. They're still about Iowa. The delay raising new questions about the future of the Iowa caucuses. If there was ever a time the Iowa caucuses could go away, this could be the final uh, straw that broke the This may very well have been the last time Iowa cast the first votes for president. The thing that stuck with me, though, is the frustration coming out of this. As these candidates were coming in, it was a very, very long night for them, many of them expressing uh, frustration. Uh, But what was clear was every single one I talked to said, now it's time to focus on New Hampshire. So on to New Hampshire. Last week, I spoke with an Iowa congressional candidate who previewed some of the questions that are now being asked of the caucus process. This week, we're talking to a freshman congressman from New Hampshire. Chris Pappas is young, not yet 40, serving his first term. But he knows New Hampshire politics as well as anyone. He first got elected at the age of 22 as a state representative. And his family has, for generations, run a political institution in the Granite State. It's not a newspaper or a party operation. They run a restaurant. But as a big Manchester meeting place, it's hosted presidential candidates for decades. And Pappas grew up in the restaurant, watching big moments happen in small places. I remember meeting candidates every four years back to when I was about seven So we wanted to talk with Congressman Pappas about New Hampshire, about the early voting system as a whole, but also about what voters in his state care about now that it's likely going to have the first clear results of the 2020 election. Among the many effects of Iowa's muddled results was the muddling of the surprise success of Pete Buttigieg. While we were all talking about an app, it was also the first time an openly gay candidate won delegates in a presidential election. Pappas himself is the first openly gay person to represent New Hampshire in Congress. He also happens to have gone to college with Pete Buttigieg, though they didn't know each other back then. That said, he hasn't endorsed anyone. We talked about all this in his offices on Capitol Hill. Take a listen. Congressman Chris Pappas, thanks for being here on The Ticket. It's great to be here. So we have had uh, a weird couple of days in politics. And the, the expression, the cliche that New Hampshire likes to get to is uh, Iowa picks corn and New Hampshire picks presidents. Uh, I'm not sure what Iowa did exactly this time around. But what does that mean for what New Hampshire is going to do? I'm not sure what happened <laughs> there either. And we'll see if we have all the final results before you know the votes are counted in New Hampshire. 
Um, but look, we're, we're very proud of our first in the nation primary. Um, this is an election that uh, encourages participation. Our Secretary of State announced today that he expects uh, between 50 and 60 percent turnout. And that's in a year where there isn't much action on the Republican side. Um, so I think voters are really engaged in a way uh, that we haven't seen in some past races. And I think New Hampshire is going to deliver again. Um, this is really not just about the time we spend with candidates, but it's a real deliberative process. People take this seriously. And we've seen over the recent past where this has had an impact on the national dialogue. You know, in 2016, people came to New Hampshire, heard about the opioid epidemic that was ravaging our communities, heard about some really heartbreaking personal stories. As a result, the national candidates all were talking about their plans to address addiction. So um, I think the intimacy of New Hampshire provides us with the opportunity to affect the conversation in a meaningful way. And that's why we're so proud of our primary. Is it the intimacy? Because with what happened in Iowa, there were Mm -hmm. already a lot of questions being asked about why Iowa gets to go first and why New Hampshire gets to go first and why we have this system of these early states that are always the the same four. What happened in Iowa has, to say the least, accentuated those conversations. So other than the fact that because New Hampshire has been doing it and so people are trained into thinking that they should take it seriously, what's the argument for New Hampshire staying first? Since I assume as a good New Hampshire politician, you are very much in favor of that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But look, this is a conversation that the parties have had for a number of years. There have been different proposals uh, in the past to modify the calendar, different states that have come forward and said we should be at the front of the pack. Uh, And I imagine that'll continue to happen in the future. I think what happened in Iowa is a function of uh, a complicated caucus system. That's not something you're going to see in a primary state uh, where the vote That's tallies the are going to... Sure. <laughs> you know, the votes are going to roll in about a half hour after the polls mm-hmm. close. There's a paper trail. We're going to have a decisive result unless, of course, it's, you know, a too close to call race with a recount, which can happen in an election. But you, there will um, at least be results. There will be results and we will be able to see them. And the next day there will be headlines in the paper and someone's going to get a bounce and some candidates are going to get knocked out. And so, but why New Hampshire? We could do that whole thing in Michigan. We could do it in sure, Arizona. We could do sure. it in New York. We could do it wherever. Well, we, uh, you know, like to guard our primary because we feel that in smaller venues, uh, without the media spotlight always being on, without, um, you know, boatloads of money pouring in, you can have a more authentic conversation. It's more of a pure form of of our democracy. And if you do it uh, first in big states. Um, there's less of a shot, I think, for a lesser-known candidate uh, without the resources to catch fire. Uh, We've seen that happen in the past in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. I I think these are two states where everyone gets a fair shake, where people listen. And that's not to say other states wouldn't do that as well. Um, But I think we've got a a proven track record. And so uh, we're proud of the process. And um, I think the results show that um, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, launching Barack Obama onto the presidency, um, or well, you know, Iowa picking, did that, didn't it? Uh, yeah, Hillary sh- Clinton won it. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I was talking about the early states together, oh, okay. uh, you know, or, you know, launching, you know, Jimmy Carter from obscurity into the White House. Um, you know, it's a system that, uh, you know, likes to look at the underdog and the early state system overhaul. That's right. Right. And I think taken together, you know, the four early states um, do represent uh, the diversity of America um, and uh, represent an ability for that conversation to happen in a meaningful way. You are younger. 
Uh, you are going to be 40 this year. But let's talk about how young you were when you started, which is your first office was you were 22 years old when you ran for the state house in New Hampshire. That's right. What kind of 22-year-old runs for state representative? <laughs> so a 22-year-old that uh, you know grew up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and has an opportunity, uh, given the citizen-led government that we have, um, there is a low bar for entry in New Hampshire politics, and yeah. you just have to be 18 and a registered voter to run How for the How many members of the state house are there? There are 400 reps yeah. and 24 senators. Right. So interestingly, we have the largest house in the country, but the smallest Senate. All of them make $100 a year. Right. Um, so they are essentially uh, full-time or part-time volunteers anyway. The legislature meets about half the year. So you got to have the time. <laughs> And the passion and the drive to do it, and so you do get some younger people. But you know the legislature. But at twenty-two, to... you decided, I want to make my hundred dollars a year and get into the state house. Sure. What what was that decision? The, the decision was um, having helped other people run. Um, it was an opportunity, I think, to you know see uh, your path forward to give back to a community that's given you a lot of opportunities. Um, but also, um, you know, the legislature, the average age is typically in the 60s, somewhere around 65. And th so I think it's important that everyone has a seat at the table, especially in a representative body like that where everyone represents about 3,000 people. Uh, Was it hard getting through to the older members of uh, the legislature? Sure. You know, just as it is, you know, here in D.C. Right. with seasoned Again, politicians. You, are, you right? are now older, but still younger than yeah. uh, the average age of, of your chamber at this point by quite a bit. Yeah, I think there are, you know, those who have been around politics a while, uh, whether in Washington or any state legislature across the country, you know, that see newer freshman members and think, well, they've got to earn their keep. You know, they, they've got to sit there and be quiet for a while and see how things are done. And I think one of the things that defines the class of new members to this particular Congress is we're not willing to sit in the back benches. We want to be a part of the conversation now. And I think our leadership has really allowed us to have that platform. You come from a family that uh, has been in New Hampshire for some generations right? and owns a restaurant in Manchester that is quite famous, um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the Puritan Backroom, which is a, a place that a lot of politicians come through. Is that what got the political bug in you? I remember meeting candidates every four years back to when I was about seven. So who's the um, first one? I remember meeting uh, Bob Dole and Michael Dukakis in the run-up to the 88 campaign. And actually, I, I pretty much knew I was a Democrat at that point in time. Because of your family? Um, no, my family, were, they were all Republicans, right. actually. Um, but I, I kinda, you were a contrarian eight-year-old. I, I don't know. I got the sense early on that you know the Democratic Party was more about regular people and the Republican Party was more about I don't know, the more powerful interests out there. Somehow I got that dichotomy <laughs> in my head. Um, and I think it still uh, rings true today. But I remember uh, I liked Dukakis on the Democratic side, and I really liked Bob Dole on the Republican side. I just saw him as a decent, honest man. And I remember in that campaign, George Bush attacked Dole relentlessly about taxes because Dole was honest and he said, you know, there may be a time where we may need to raise, raise taxes to, you know, fill in the deficit and take care of our needs. And Bush was relentless against him. And I thought, well, that just doesn't seem right. You know, here's a guy who tries to, you know, just level with voters and uh, is getting attacked over it on TV ads. So I never forgave George H.W. Bush for what he did to Bob Dole in New Hampshire, but <laughs> I was a Dukakis supporter early on and, and a Democrat after that. So, I, you know, everyone in New Hampshire can remember the first time they saw a candidate. Most people who are active in politics 
um, got there because of a presidential campaign. So someone will, you know, have originated with the Gary Hart campaign or the Howard Dean campaign or John McCain campaign. And that's sort of who they are. Um, and so does it, that com- come through, continue through for you? That's again, just because this restaurant is, it's huge, uh, and has been there for a long time. So it's an institution, uh, and people come through it, it, Were you meeting other candidates as they were all the through? time there, we have about 250 seats. So right. it's a place that always has kind of a built in crowd, uh, and kind of a, a local community gathering spot. So the candidates were always showing up and anybody uh, else I was getting stuck to meet them you? all. Yeah, I remember Bob Carey when he was running. He uh, tended bar, uh, <laughs> you know, for for an evening, and people really loved to see that. Clinton, the night before the New Hampshire primary in '92, where it was his comeback win, he finished the day at a bowling alley and then came into the restaurant, basically at like 10 p.m. or so. And I think there was an Arkansas basketball game on in the kitchen, and he's going through meeting the staff. And he stood there for about half an hour or so and watched this basketball game with some of the cooking staff in the kitchen. Uh, And they still talk about it today. And here's this guy like on the verge of this major moment, regaining a footing and, and, you know, becoming president, just like hanging out at this this local place and finishing up his his primary campaign. That's New Hampshire. I will say when I was up... uh, in September for the state democratic convention, which this uh, time around obviously had all the presidential candidates coming through, there was someone who got onto the plane back to DC uh, with a box of the chicken tenders to bring home to make mm-hmm. sure. And I'm not sure that they would have made it in great condition all the way yeah. through, but he was convinced that if you put them in the oven, it would be okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just for the, the the politics. People do go there for yeah. food too, I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, you. Uh, you came up in that uh, world and then went to Harvard. And when you were at Harvard, you were uh, there uh, with a number of people who ended up being uh, factors in politics. Uh, did you know Ruben Gallego, your your colleague uh, uh, and fellow Harvard classmate? He was on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, I did know Ruben. And, uh, you know, we were you guys were the same year, right? We were, yeah. And there were a number of other, I mean, Seth Moulton was there at the same yeah. time. Pete Buttigieg was a couple of years behind me. We lived in the same house, although I don't remember ever meeting him. Uh, he was very ensconced at the Institute of Politics. Buttigieg has talked about being in college and thinking about a future in politics being perhaps out of uh out of consideration for him because he 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 knew he was gay and at that point uh even though this is the the late 90s uh early 2000s it seemed out of uh out of consideration for him to be uh open about who he was but also have a career in politics that's something that you thought about as well at that point um obviously he's done pretty well for himself and and you have too uh can you take me back through that and and what that as someone who was interested in politics and going through that thought process? It was a struggle, and I think everyone, uh, you know, dealt with it in their own way. Um, and certainly it was a time period where uh, it wasn't always uh, safe or easy to be out. Um, maybe it was on a college campus, but um, probably not in a small town in, uh, you know, New Hampshire or Indiana for that matter. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that the world has changed in really spectacular ways. And it, we've gotten there in part because of 
um, the hard work people have done and the fact that people have put themselves on the line and come out over time. So we we all benefit from, you know, those people that have shared their truths and told their stories over the years. Um, but, and I think now, you know, in politics, there's a level of authenticity that comes with divulging that, uh, with coming out, um, with telling people who you are. Um, if you're honest about that, you're going to be perhaps... Uh, more honest with voters about a whole host of other things that they care about. Was there a point when you were younger where you thought, I'm interested in politics, but I'm gay, and I don't know how I'm going to make these things go together, though, and, and felt that pull? I, I don't know if I ever sat down and thought, well, I want to uh, run for office or have a career in politics. But, um, you know, the, it, it didn't seem plausible, really, in that era that you could be um, elected to office and be out. Um, I left college after having come out and at 22, a few months later, um, was elected to the state legislature. Um, really didn't talk about it much, but if anyone asked, I was honest with them about it. Um, I think starting at a level like that, there was a little bit of an, uh, there was some anonymity, uh, you know, about, um, you know, your personal life, certainly as you advance in politics, there's a little bit more scrutiny uh, paid to it. But um, times have changed and there's been a really broad sweep since the late 90s till today. And, um, you know, hopefully no one else has to kind of grapple with those, uh, the, you know, those issues uh, and, you know, think that they can't pursue the career or, uh, you know, an interest that they're passionate about because of who they are. Let's take a short break. We'll be back with more with Congressman Chris Pappas in a moment. You were talking about the opioid crisis and what 2016 did in terms of bringing national candidates to New Hampshire and making them see what was happening in New Hampshire and then having that help elevate uh, that into the national conversation. This year for the State of the Union, you and uh, all of your fellow members of the House and Senate delegations in New Hampshire brought people who in one way or the other were connected to what's going on, law enforcement or people who have uh, been recovering, suffering from what has been happening. But I wonder, even with the increased amount of time that we spend talking about opioids now, are we still missing just how deep this crisis is? We are missing the profound and lifelong impacts that addiction have on individuals. You know, when someone is in recovery from opioid abuse, uh, they're there for a lifetime. And so, you know, that's why as policymakers, our job is so important to make sure that we can sustain uh, the funding and the efforts that we've um, tried to put in place. We also need to understand that it's not just about opioids. I mean, this um, crisis has gone from overprescribing and pain pills to heroin to fentanyl. Um, now we're seeing a crystal meth uh, epidemic in my state and in other places. So I think the picture of addiction changes over time. Um, and we have to understand that it presents itself in many forms. It, is it about overprescribing? Is it about the despair that gets people there in the first place? What, what's happening here? Look, these, these drugs are potent. The chemical nature of them are such that when they're in your system, it is a long period of time or a lifetime to get them out. And um, 
And uh, we just didn't have the infrastructure in place to allow people to seek treatment and to get on the right path. So I think as a society, um, we need to make sure we're always looking at this um, as uh, an illness that can be treated um, and not as a moral failing. And it seems like also the economic factor here is a big part of it. I think there are a lot of diseases of despair that have been impacting our community, certainly. And so, um, you know, we need to start early to make sure opportunities are there for uh, young people, to make sure we're investing in early childhood education. You know, statistics show that if we're taking care of our kids, they're much less likely to abuse drugs and are much more likely to have long, healthy lives. My guest to the State of the Union was someone that is doing work on adverse childhood experiences and um, pulling together community members to respond and wrap kids who have experienced trauma with services to mitigate that trauma um, because that'll have a a positive impact on their lives. Because the trauma now... Has it'll manifest itself later. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we've got to look at this holistically as a societal concern and make Why sure. Why do you think it's so bad in New Hampshire? Well, as I, opposed to other places where there is an opiate problem, but it is New Hampshire is one of the places where it's higher. You know, the drugs have been on our doorstep uh, for a number of years, um, but we really lacked the infrastructure of of treatment and recovery services that. Um, maybe some other areas had. You know, we had a mental health system in the 70s that was the model of the nation, and it was chronically underfunded uh, by the state over a period of decades. And I think that helped exacerbate um, this issue when, uh, you know, the cheap drugs started hitting the streets. We're also the last state to adopt a prescription drug monitoring program. Um, And I think the overprescribing is is something that, uh, you know, really brought this crisis uh, to epic proportions. You have lived in New Hampshire your whole life, except for college, I guess. Uh, You know a lot of people there. Do you know people who have been hit by this crisis? Everyone does. Coworkers, high school classmates. Everyone has someone in their family that has grappled with addiction. Most events I have, if this issue comes up, I'll ask for a show of hands of who's lost someone close to them. And it's without question, two-thirds, three-quarters of the hands in the room. We'll go it, up. Who's it for you? I had a cousin uh, that was struggling for a long period of time and um, unfortunately was was lost. And, uh, you know, we all think about people close to us um, and wonder how we could have done things differently. I remember comforting uh, someone I worked with at the restaurant who lost her son and she was so distraught and was wondering what else she could have done. And We've left so many people feeling helpless in this crisis. She did everything she knew how to do and tried to get him into programs, but the drugs were just too strong. Um, this needs to be an effort at all levels that um, really gives people the tools to uh, lead healthy, successful lives. In 2016, that was the issue that you feel like it was important that the presidential candidates got to see up close. Uh, it continues to be a big issue, and they continue to confront it. And now it has been part of the presidential campaigning uh, throughout that I've seen. Are there other things that you feel like this time around have been pushed into their heads in a way that will have that same kind of reverberation into the national conversation uh, by being in New Hampshire? Well, there are a number of, I think, issues of local importance that have come up. Uh, One I'll mention is, uh, you know, the 
safety of our drinking water and PFAS contamination. We have a couple of sites in New Hampshire, an old Air Force base and an industrial site where residents, you know, in those places were drinking contaminated water for a number of years. Um, we have people that served on a military base that aren't really sure of their exposure level or what it means that they have elevated levels in their blood. Um, so, you know, presidential candidates have been engaging on that particular issue. This is a national issue that I think we're just beginning to see uh, the contours of and understanding that there needs to be a stronger response from EPA. Um, so you've heard a number of the candidates weigh in on this. And, you know, hopefully that's one issue that we can take to the national stage. We're sitting in your office in Capitol Hill, uh, a couple doors down is your colleague in the New Hampshire delegation, Annie Cooster. Yep. Uh, she has endorsed a candidate in this race. She endorsed Pete Buttigieg uh, a couple weeks ago. You have very specifically not endorsed someone. Why not? I haven't figured out who I'm going to vote for yet, <laughs> and to be brutally honest with you. Um, I actually have to vote absentee on Monday because I'll be back in D.C. on Tuesday, the day of the primary. Um, but so you are an undecided New Hampshire I'm voter. An, yeah. So, okay. So for the presidential candidates out there, what do they need to do to win your vote? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, this is a year where so many New Hampshire primary voters are taking a step back. They're excited to be a part of the process, to hear from candidates, but they know this is a big decision to make and they don't want to get it wrong. Um, I think winning for uh, folks that are voting in the Democratic primary is really paramount. And I think they're just beginning to understand which candidates have an ability to, to deliver a victory. Um, so it's, it's really a question, I think, of um, you know, voters continuing to grapple with that, um, you know, who best motivates them to get to the polls, but also you know, who can get the job done in November. So you want to know who can win and that's how you're going to decide who to vote for. Well, I think <laughs> that's that's one consideration. Um, and who do I want to, uh, you know, run with next fall? I have spent a year and a half on the road covering mm -hmm. this race. Uh, in the the last couple of days before the caucuses, I was talking to people who were undecided, mm -hmm. uh, and it was striking to me that that could be yeah. true. Uh, it was striking to some of the people who were working on the campaigns that that could be true. Uh, what do you think it is that's going to happen in between now and uh, what are we about a hundred hours probably from when you'll uh, fill out your absentee ballot that will make you know, okay, that's the one. I guess I got to get out to some events this weekend, right? <laughs> so there's a, there's a dinner on uh, Saturday night that the new Hampshire democratic party is doing. All the candidates will be there. Um, I'm attending a, a debate on Friday night that the DNC is sponsoring so I think I'll, I think I'll I'll get a feeling after those two events uh, right. where I'm gonna where I'm gonna end up. But it's really important for me that the voters of New Hampshire feel good about their choice and that they're out in front of this process. And so um, you know I think it's going to be uh, an effort to bring everyone back together. And so it's important to have uh, members of Congress and other you know leaders who are able to be a part of that effort and. Um, that's what I'd like to see happen. I, I really want to find a way that we can uh, heal, come together, um, you know, understand that our, our differences are pretty small compared to the agenda from the Republican Party um, and know that um, we've got to really have a, a big tent and, uh, you know, a concerted effort to, to build a, you know, consensus around a candidate. Last question. When you decide, are you going to let anybody know? 
I don't know. Well, we just, so we had a case recently go through court. You know, ballot selfies were illegal in New Hampshire for a while, according to the Secretary of State. Um, but that was reversed by a court decision. So I've been toying with the idea, do I do a ballot selfie and just sort of say, like, you know, this is, this is who I'm supporting? Um, Feel free to let me know. We'll see. My, my staff may not <laughs> let me do that. I don't know. But um, I, I'm, still, I'm still figuring out who I'm going to vote for. But um, it's really important to me that this process goes well um, and that the voters of New Hampshire feel good about their choice. And I'm just you know, thankful I can be in the position to be kind of an ambassador for the New Hampshire primary in the process. All right. Congressman Chris Pappas, thanks for being here on The Ticket. Thanks for your time. That'll do it for this week of The Ticket, Politics from the Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is The Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by Breakmaster Cylinder. For articles and transcripts of the episodes, go to theatlantic.com slash the ticket. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. You might have, if you were standing in the lobby of a West Des Moines Holiday Inn on Monday night, heard me say, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Got that on tape. That's, uh, that'll be at the end of the episode. <laughs>